Welcome to the Creative Industry Insight Podcast, a podcast that looks at various roles in the creative world. I'm your host, Bobby. Today's guest, production designer Ruth Ammon, joins us to talk about their work on Station Eleven. Please be warned, there are heavy spoilers in this episode, so make yourself comfortable as we jump into the conversation with Ruth. Hi, Ruth. Thank you for joining me today. Nice to meet you. Um, I'm excited to talk about Station Eleven. <laughs> Just finished the show a couple of days ago, so I'm sort of excited to delve, delve in and everything and talk about the production design of the show. I've really enjoyed it. The ending was slightly different to what I expected, but it was like a really beautiful ending. But I don't want yeah. to spoil too much for those who haven't seen it. Yeah, I guess we just have this... Uh, I, I usually like to start from how how did the sort of project come to be for you but how have you found let's start from the end and try it that way how have you found the reaction to the show I'm really excited I mean it's always feels great when people appreciate the work and appreciate stories and you know I've been doing this for a lot of years and actually when I saw this project in development and, you know, with Patrick and Hero, it was something that I knew right away that I, you know, I wanted to be on so badly. And, you know, the entire kind of history and turn of events that happened as we were making this just made it all the more impactful. And it also just becomes like our own life story at the same time you're creating scenery and storytelling. You're also creating art. You're also kind of living this life as an artist or a traveling symphony member. What, what is it that drew you to the project? Like, what is it when you've read the script and sort of started building the world in your mind that really just thought like, this is it. I really, I'm going to, I'm really going to gun for this. And this is what I really want to work on. Well, I mean, I think that honestly, the first thing that attracted me to the project were um, that I saw that Patrick, Patrick's name was a, you know, Patrick Somerville's name was attached and Hiro Marai. And once I saw that, I got the book and I happened to be working in Budapest at the time. I was finishing up a 19th century story and um, I was just driving around Budapest at night listening to Emily St. John Mandel's voice. It wasn't her voice. It was the um, audible version, but it was absolutely beautiful and haunting. And knowing that it was in the hands of these two, you know, incredibly special creative beings, I just, that was the thing that really excited me. I wanted something that was really different than I had ever done before. And, you know, the bottom line is like, and all these projects, you know, you work so hard. It's who the people you work with and the pre, uh, creative process you share with them, which becomes the most exciting thing. Because I think um, Patrick worked on The Leftovers, which has a similar vibe to this. And I'm currently reading Station Eleven as well, the book. And I feel like the there's such, from what I've read so far and what I've seen, the, the feel of it is the same, but it feels mm-hmm. like the story is kind of slightly different. So I'm kind of eager to sort of get on and see if anything's changed or if it's still similar (laughs) but I don't want to sort of spoil it for myself even though I've inadvertently spoiled it for myself by watching the show 
Well, it's sort of, um, you know, I've listened to some of your podcasts, so, and it's really great for me to hear the voices of other craftspeople, for sure, because especially in this particular, in this particular uh, project, you know, you had the book and we all got like haunted and in love with the book. And then you had Patrick's interpretation of the book and Patrick's vision, which, you know, everyone puts their heart and feeling into everything. And then, you know, this, the, the, the scripts changed, of course, but also things happened during the pandemic. And then there's like the editing room where, you know, there's this whole other craft that can take these pieces and move them around. So there were a lot of surprises for me, like a lot of really beautiful surprises. So like sometimes for me watching, you know, my work or the work of, you know, the project I'm on, it's a whole different experience when you sit down and watch it. And I'm frequently surprised, but this one in particular was like, wow, you know, and, you know, sometimes I'm just so buried into it. I can't keep up with all the little changes that happen on set or the redirection. So it, this show was really, really meaningful to watch in person. <laughs> when it came to designing the show, maybe this is just me, but like, I noticed that when you have the before, it felt very gray and sterile. But then the after just kind of felt everything was kind of like blossoming again. And that sort of feel of, I guess, not necessarily freedom, but. Um, I think so. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, the freedom of the open road. But there's also the just everything seemed a bit more healthier, if that makes yes. it, I don't know, that's probably not the right, right uh, word. No, to use, I think you're absolutely that. right. There was like basic, like we, there's so much world building here and there's kind of different aspects of the world building. So part one is what we called everything in Chicago and um, Los Angeles. It was mostly Chicago was year zero. And everything after that was either year two or year 20, which was our kind of post-apocalyptic titles. Chicago was, you know, in, it was an urban environment and it was kind of um, gritty and dirty and loud and there was so much texture and we wanted, you know, we wanted the audience to feel what they saw. So we had, you know, the sounds of mass transit, cars, subways, elevated subway. Um, We had people listening to music, the sound of televisions going. I mean, just, it was every kind of sound and texture you could find in a deep urban environment, along with the snow and the weather and the grayness. And we wanted, you know, then we kind of removed everything into a different landscape that kind of embraced lushness and kind of a verdant rebirth. And not to go back and revisit that world and, you know, have smashed windows and, you know, I don't know what, um, that kind of more typical apocalyptic vision. We wanted something that seemed a little bit more, I guess, positive, but also kind of like an adventure and a road trip and a traveling story. I think one thing I noticed as well is in a lot of these like apocalyptic shows, it's not realistic because you notice that somebody's been cutting the grass, but in some... (laughs) Don't even talk about the grass. I may kill someone. <laughs> it was a big sore spot with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, because you we see. We tried. I mean, go, go on, ahead. Sorry. So sorry. No, 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 go on, go on, go on. No, I just say like we like part of the big, you know, just scouting for this 
um, year 20 was finding places where, um, you know, suburbia or post-suburbia or any environment was allowed to grow wild and kind of um, rewilding was a theme that we were going for in all the landscapes. And because we didn't want to deal with lots of small details of uh, like CG elements and burnt down houses and, you know, just that kind of really negative thing. We went for the bigger, wider scope places that were overgrown. And um, uh, that was sort of the approach as opposed to like, I forbid houses as after, um, after Himesh broke into the one suburbia, I was like, no more houses because I just felt it was a story that I couldn't tell in this and it wasn't necessary. I guess as well, because it's such a human story amongst people, and it kind of centers around the comic book Station Eleven as well. Yeah, I think if you focus too much on the sort of po- post the, the ap- apocalyptic, well, it's not apocalyptic. It's more of the sort of you know the suburban side of everything. I think you lose that human element, even though you do get an idea of how many people have died. But it's the survivors and what they are doing to sort of make it a better world, in a weird way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we deal with, and you know, our different worlds that we were building in the post, you know, we'll call it year 20 world was, you know, the different ways that people coped with or managed living through it. You know, there were all those who died, but then, you know, there was the traveling symphony who used art and, and holding on to culture and Shakespeare for, you know, for the future society and then there was a whole airport community Severn City Airport that became like the safe structured suburbs that you know we're all used to the kind of tinted houses where everything kind of is um, homogenized and then we had um, St. Deborah's by the water which was the kind of post Habermaker baby birthing <laughs> community that was living to um, off the land and nurture and continue on with um, a growing society. We had the pink tree community, which was like sort of the institutions of country clubs versus kind of university academia. And then we had um, the undersea, which you know, were the people who didn't want to know about the past and they were the kids who just wanted to move forward in the future and kind of create the world of their own. You mentioned one of my favorite um, places and that is the, um, the pink tree, the golf club. Um, <laughs> it's just the whole idea is like these sort of it's wacky so people and it's so silly, but it's so, so smart at the same time in terms of just that, like it, it's not this, you know, a golf club is usually, you know, you, you think of like high society in terms of people with wealth, but then it completely changed to actually now it's us academics who are running it. And we have, we have this whole area, but there's also just the certain rooms and just the sort of, um, especially Gil's office where he's putting and everything. <laughs> it's just so, just so well lived in that it has that sort of idea that, you know, you have these golf balls that pop out of everywhere. But on top of that, you have, you know, he has this big madness. Book of, yeah, it's just, there's no way to explain his madness, but it's just portrayed in that way where it's just think, I kind of get it, but I kind of also understand that 
I, I know what he's going for. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but when you Patrick is uh, Patrick is like so connected to the whole country club culture. And I think I was too growing up. And I just thought it was so fun to kind of have this parallel of you know, people that think institutions are so important and in year 20 are institutions that important. And, you know, when you get to academia, and I mean, I think sometime in my life, I thought I was going to be an art history professor and you see all the paths and the rows and it just becomes sort of a, a very structured and not really, um, you know, not really surprising path there, which I think the same thing becomes in this weird way with with golf clubs or, you know, country clubs where, especially in America, where there's all these laws and institutions about what is correct. And, you know, they're all kind of nonsense at a certain point. You, you get to basically deconstruct that um, yes. with killing them, with everybody being killed off. But then also it's the added touch of like the landmines, which when they're walking and they're like, I, they ha- they've taken them out and then, they haven't actually taken him out. It's probably one of the, it's probably the second most nerve wracking scene um, of that episode. Uh, the first being when you have the kid walking around being a human bomb, which is just like, wow. So that was, uh, I couldn't even bear that. Yeah, it's just so, such a dark turn because everything's been so, it, it hasn't been as bad basically. And yeah, it does take a really dark turn with that idea. But what I am also curious about is uh, the design of the the Museum of Civilization because color palette never really changes throughout the whole show for it. Even when it, when you go from year zero to year twenty, even though everything else is growing around and thriving, it feels like a very much an area that is basically cut off from the world, as you do find out later on. And where did that sort of idea and design come from? to sort of um, not change the, the colour palette and uh, keep it the same way for 20 years? Well, one, I guess we wanted to mark the airport, all of it, all the, I think there's five or six different locations that built the airport terminal itself. And we created a palette to represent kind of um, the Michigan and kind of Northern Great Lake region of um, America. And you might have seen that Great Lake map in the middle of the floor. Um, So all those colors were meant to, you know, water and green. And even though it was an interior environment to keep those colors and also like these pops of reds and oranges. With the observation, I mean, with the um, Museum of Civilization, I don't know, it just sort of came to me at the very last minute of how to make it impactful was to write the letters on the wall as big as possible. And um, I kind of took that from, um, you know, seeing that Clark was, you know, a New Yorker and he probably went to museums. And so it was sort of like, you know, high-end museum graphics to use something really overscaled and in your face as a way to one, just one, say what it was, but also to kind of focus on all the objects in the room so that the objects in the room kind of pop out more than painting the room a color or distressing it or anything like that. There are a lot of kind of circles in our show and observation decks, I suppose. You know, we start with um, Frank's apartment, which is uh, Lake Point Tower in Chicago, which is 
kind of a Mies van der Rohe disciples. That was meant to be an observation of the um, pandemic. That was kind of what we were thinking of that and why to have that kind of 270 degree view. I think we circles somewhere else. Oh, the um, at Severn City, you know, we were just saying at the um, observation tower, uh, just for the air air traffic control, and then also in the curling court, you'll see that curling court um, that was part of um, Pink Tree, where you see uh, young Kirsten looking for Alex, and we kind of focus on a circle there of the target for the curling. We also use a circle in um, Lucy Cherniak's, is it episode seven, when Kirsten, young Kirsten and old Kirsten are confronting each other after the poisoning and the, the fight with the red bandana. We kind of circle up and there's a circle of rocks, which are the same kind of staged rocks from the performance of King Lear from the opening episode 101 of Arthur. And I'm trying to think, what, oh, and Station 11. Station 11 is on a radius as well. So we use that as another tie-in. And then when Miranda goes to the Thompson Center in Chicago, that again has another kind of radius, kind of interior and um, kind of explosive kind of spaceship interior. So it was a theme that we were, you know, we were conscious of, and especially since the traveling symphony works in a circle, and they say we stay on the circle, we, you know, circle the Great Lakes, and it, so it was all kind of a tie in there. Now that when you talk about it more, it's starting to click in my head, there's certain scenes picking up where it is, where they're all sort of based in, in that circular environment um, in, various, in various locations. Um, but I wanted to ask as well, uh, when we're looking at stuff like in the Museum of the Civilization, you see various uh, items like a Game Boy and electronics. And even at one point they pulled out a karaoke machine, which is quite a funny scene as well. Trying to explain, <laughs> so great. Yeah, trying to explain what a karaoke <laughs> what machine is. What we did. <laughs> I mean, all of those are very, very specific to Patrick. Um, he, you know, he has a connection to all of them. And, um, you know, we really didn't, at one point we had really filled it up with too many things. And then we just kind of paired back to really specific objects. And it was also kind of like weird at the same time when we were filming, we filmed that in Toronto and we actually filmed all the atrium stuff in a place called the Ontario Science Center. And when we were scouting the Ontario Science Center, there was a display that was on that was closed down because of COVID. And that was like the Museum of Civilization. It had all sorts of like pop culture items from many eras back, like, you know, a barrel of monkeys, Legos, a Scrabble set, um, a viewfinder, silly buddy. So it was kind of like this weird thing that happened that we were kind of before we even built the civilization, uh, Museum of Civilization, we were kind of wandering through someone else's time capsule and it kind of inspired some of the other ideas. It, it felt weird seeing stuff from my childhood being presented and <laughs> it, uh, I don't know, it was just a sense of realization of like, wow, people, you know, imagine if people actually did collect these and was saying, they were saying that there's certain points in time 
where those things are so meaningful yeah to people you know that 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 game boy is what i used to spend hours on playing pokemon <laughs> or you know the when you're talking about the like the putty and everything just like wow that's like that's stuff from my childhood now it's in a museum yeah it feels that's a bit odd to think oh, about the it sony walkman the sony walkman it was so beautiful i mean it was just like the first time something so small and elegant you know you could carry around town and listen to music it was really like kids today take you know it doesn't even mean anything it's just it was spectacular when it first came out oh, and yeah. life-changing for people yeah i had a i had a walkman and like a cd player and to see that <laughs> you're just like wow it's always this sort of fun, fun, fun like just, just funny things but with this, like with a TV series as well, you're going to be working with a number of different directors. What's the design process then? Do you specifically design just for the whole show? Or is it that does each director's vision dictate uh, how you design per episode? Well, I think it's both. Um, and that's sort of the both the difficult thing and exciting thing about television. So... On this show, I had a really great connection with um, Hero and Patrick. And so they really set the tone and, you know, all the big statements and all the big ideas were definitely, you know, I worked directly with them, but all of those meetings, you know, each and every one of those directors were part of the meetings and got to kind of suggest or add or, you know, veer a little left or right. Um, but it's also completely um, nutty because I think at one time when we were, we were actually building the terminal um, that was a decommissioned terminal, terminal, but we really had to build everything in there, all those shops and rearrange everything. I mean, it was, you know, a big deal. And, um, you know, we had tech scouts and I think Lucy was going through and then Jeremy was going, uh, Lucy Cherniak and then Jeremy Podeswa and then Helen Shaver. And it was like my head was splitting because each of them had very, very, very specific stories to tell. And that's what, a, you know, the great directors do. They have to tell that specific story and find the right angles and the right compositions. And at the same day, I was trying to work with the same sets with very different story points and um, emotional impact and specific frames. So that was like, you know, if I was ever going to um, teach or talk to anyone about production design, that would definitely be a day because it really shows one that you have to have the big idea and you have to really stick to it and understand why that big vision is there, but also support all the directors because they bring it and um, you know you can see very clearly on station 11 that there are specific styles and specific feelings to each one of them and they were all they were all brilliant they were all wonderful to work with and really super interesting um, but it was you know it was really intense <laughs> well yeah I can imagine as well when you're working with as you're mentioning directors with different visions and styles and what they want um, to present in the show I think you can kind of tell the different directors and you know you can tell why they were given certain episodes and especially with the tone and what they were focusing on because you see I think uh, Heroes episodes that's episode one and three are very much focusing <laughs> focusing on like one not you know focusing on a main character going through their journey so when of Jeevan in the first episode 
kind of finding out about the flu and then taking Kirsten on and then going to Frank's house. And then episode three is uh, Miranda's story where you you follow her and kind of understand what what her life is about. Yeah, I mean, Hero set the tone and um, like his particular style and his point of view and how he sees things. I really feel like it was part of my job on the scenery end of things, on the production design end of things to carry that vision through the rest of the episodes. And part of that vision was uh, frame composition, which, you know, you can look at anything that Hero's done and you know that it's his work because there's just an elegance and stillness to it. And just also the idea of scope and scale and macro and micro. And it um, those are things that we kind of always kept, you know, in the next episodes. I mean, we did a lot of our concept art during that period and, you know, just working on, you know, Dr. Levin's point of view versus, you know, a human point of view versus being in the moment. And, you know, those were documents that we, of course, shared with Helen and Jeremy and um, Lucy um, for them to understand and just take that and create their vision from that. I do you like the sort of idea though when you do have one director setting the tone and then everybody else sort of follows suit but then also adds you know sprinkle of their own touch to it all but on top of that it's funny to be watching a show about a pandemic during a pandemic and kind of seeing similarities of what was happening in the show to what was happening during this time because the the show was shut down uh, because of the pandemic did this give you a chance once once the sort of show was in a hiatus did this give you a chance to start reworking ideas or was it a case of you've already had everything planned out it was just sort of waiting to start back up again well I think it was a matter of kind of reaffirming ideas um, we didn't necessarily shut down for the pandemic we had finished filming heroes work and we went back to LA to do a few days there and then we were we were meant to have a few months off to regroup and the art department was going to start up and start you know massive building however and I do remember and I I just can't remember exactly where I was when we all shared the New York Times article about the pandemic and the you know that China there was a flu in China, but China was being very open about it and handling it and it was all going to be under control. And we were just sort of like, isn't that funny? No one, you know, none of us have ever been through a pandemic. And now it's a word we use all the time, like it's going to get gasoline or something. So, you know, we didn't even know what that was. And you know, we did have a little bit of time during the summer where Patrick just wanted us to regroup and he brought uh, Jeremy on board just to discuss what this pandemic is starting to mean to mean to us because now we're living in it. You know, before it was an idea where we were creating based on a novel and Patrick's scripts and now we're actually living in it. And it really did it really did have impact and it really, you know, it carried on actually during the filming because 
you know, we were all alone. Like I was alone. I can't tell you like most days and nights driving all over Ontario, talking to Patrick on a phone, um, you know, FaceTiming, showing him scenes. And, you know, I was like part of the traveling single, the single soldier on the traveling symphony trying to pitch all these ideas and for him to see them and then, you know, bring the others. It, it was it was, we were in it and we were living it. And it was very, very lonely. And yet it was also one of the most creative moments of my life. So it, you know, it had all the things that, you know, you see when you watch the show, the, you know, Dan Romer's music is just, you know, just weep instantly, but you feel fulfilled. And I mean, I think that's what we were all going through, at least, you know, I'm sure, you know, the crew is always the crew and they're together, but like the art department is frequently way the hell out there separate from everybody. And, um, you know, you couldn't be in the same room at the same time. And we couldn't have our um, directors walk through the art department, you know, where we usually have the entire visual arc of the show up on walls, down hallways where they can see everything. You know, we had to do these dopey Zoom meetings. <laughs> and try to explain what we're thinking. There'll be nothing like it. I mean, it's really like, I feel very fortunate and yet it was very, very difficult. And, you know, I'd be away from my husband for almost a year straight without seeing him. And my supervising art director, you know, didn't have his whole family. And there was a few of us like that and um, we couldn't go home. And so we felt even more committed to, all the design choices we were making, you know, those big wide landscapes, we were alone. And, you know, honestly, any kind of joy we felt, um, we kind of brought to the picture. Like, I don't know if you saw in, let's say episode 102 or 103, 102 and 104 and 106, where you go to the gas station and you see like, a million um, tractor trailers, I'm not tractor trailers, um, lawn cutters, the tractor lawn cutters. Like I had been driving around all over Ontario and I found this mechanic who collected lawn cutters, lawn mowers. And we asked him if we could rent them from him. We rented like 50 of these kind of vintage lawn mowers. And there was no, there was no really reason to have them in the frame. We just put them in the frame because it somehow told a story of like a human touch, a human um, chore that you used to have to do every Saturday, get on the lawnmower, cut the grass when you're a kid. It was just sort of like bringing that like small human element to this wide, lonely landscape. And, you know, that wasn't scripted. It was just something I had, you know, come across and it was fun. I still think it's, it's quite, it's quite funny how it just sort of come across certain things <laughs> that people yes. collect and, because I've, I've heard sort of stories as well of, from other production designers where, yes. you know, they're sort of happy accidents. These people were helping out the the solo track, uh, the solo symphony or orchestra, <laughs> or a, sim- or a solo sympathy designer. Um, yes. <laughs> and like, it's just it. We got help along the way, and yeah, just yeah. Yeah, quite just quite funny to sort of hear as well with what they um, what people were planning. So I do have one final question for you, and this is just more of a mm-hmm. nice, fun wrap-up one. 
I know we're in a pandemic now, but if you had to save one thing to sort of show civilization 20 years time, something that meant something important to you, what is it that you would show them? Boy, that's a hard one. Um, I know it's always, I might say like a drawing table, as simple as that, a drawing table. Um, you can see behind me, I still have a drawing table and everyone in my art department is computerized. And there's something about the act of drawing and the physicality of the pencil and the lead on a piece of paper and, you know, the emotional feedback you get from doing it and seeing it. So I think the drawing board, it's not really technology, but it is something that I think is important. Uh, 100%, especially for designer with just how important they are. And I've seen designers as well, sitting there, glasses on, (laughs) sketching away (laughs) and everything, getting their schematics. And it's just been like, oh, it's quite interesting. But I tell you what, it'd be extremely hard thing to lug around uh, if you're no, traveling, I'm not lug that <laughs> maybe you know, one of my cats. Uh, I don't know. I'm just I've always been on the road for the past five years. I've been on the road. So I travel as, you know, as lightly as possible. So I'm I'm not weighted down by much of anything. And, you know, the phone is the connection to family at, you know, this point in my life. Exactly. And it's funny how we're all glued to our phones and everything. Um <laughs> how important they are to everyday life yeah ruth thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today you're very welcome (laughs) and thank you so much no thank you again Uh, station 11 streaming on hbo max in america and on stars play in the uk and please go out and watch it it's absolutely great show even though it's about pandemics it's (laughs) it's about love (laughs) it's it's about love friendship and uh what is it moving Uh, on continuing on yeah, and then uh, somebody will find you. I found you nine times before. I'll find you ah, then awesome. the tenth time, which is just such a like a beautiful oh. sort of phrase as well, to say the least. Thank you, Ruth. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you very much. You take care Bye-bye. now. Bye bye. Okay. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast.